Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. Today's episode is called Looking for the Self. In the last episode, we began looking in detail at the Satipatthana refrain, which occurs after each of the 21 exercises in the Satipatthana Sutta. After breath, after body parts, after corpses, after mind, and so on. We learn that the refrain is concerned with discovering the three characteristics of non-self, impermanence, and suffering in the scope of the exercise, and that it gives a particularly strong role to the characteristic of non-self. In fact, the refrain and other elements of the Satipatthana Sutta are very much organized around the teaching of non-self. The teaching of non-self is, in a nutshell, that what we understand as the self is a presumption, a fabrication of the mind. Since it is also a presumption that gets us into a lot of trouble, it's good news that it is fabricated because we can learn to experience the world otherwise, that is, without a self. What we hope to achieve through Satipatthana practice is not to prove that there is no self, you can't prove a negation, but to learn to experience the world otherwise, without a self, simply by repeatedly looking for it and not finding it. Now, we experience the self, but we don't perceive it directly. We experience it when we tell stories about the self, when we attribute qualities to the self, and as we do this, we become convinced it is there. So the first step is to look at what we can experience as possible evidence for the self. We do that by trying to find it in body, in feelings, or rather in experience itself, and in mind. For instance, we contemplate the breath to become intimate with the fine details of the bodily breath as someplace we might find the self lurking. Most importantly, we notice that the breath is impermanent. It is nothing but arisings and vanishings. In this way, we contemplate body in the body internally. The body itself is also a presumption, one we easily identify with the self. But we don't experience the body directly either. We only experience some impermanent bits and parts of body at a time, including the breath. But we cannot find the body in the breath. We also cannot find the self in the breath. Internal analysis, along with its concern with impermanence, represents almost all of the work of an exercise in the first three satipatthanas. Through internal analysis, we become intimate with the details of observable 
bodily evidence like breath. The next step is to look for the presumed body or the presumed self. We do this in two steps. First, we remind ourselves what the external body is. We may have forgotten it if we sit with the breath for an hour. Second, we hold the evidence we've been contemplating internally and the presumed body side by side to see if the internal body requires the external body, if it's in there somewhere, or even if they are compatible. He abides abides contemplating contemplating body in the body body internally, or he abides abides contemplating body in the body externally, or he abides contemplating body in the body both internally and externally. We don't need to spend a lot of time and effort on this. We simply bring the presumed body or self to awareness. An easy way to do this is simply to recall our favorite narrative about it. One feature generally suffices. What a marvelous physical specimen am I! Or, I've gotten many decades of use out of this old body. However, we must keep it short, lest we proliferate ourselves into a distracted, uncomposed state and forget about the internal breath. We are likely to have been conducting internal analysis in samadhi. Before we perform this, and samadhi is adverse to narrative content in any case. Discursive thinking is present in the first jhana, and although constrained, narrative content is still supported there. However, beyond the first jhana, bringing the external body to mind becomes nearly impossible. In this way, samadhi contributes to the deconstruction of self by controlling our capacity for proliferation. Elsewhere, the Buddha instructs us, Come, bhikkhu, abide observing body in the body, but do not think thoughts connected with the body. Abide observing feelings and feelings, but do not think thoughts connected with feelings. Abide observing mind and mind, but do not think thoughts connected with the mind. Abide observing dhammas as dhammas, but do not think thoughts connected with dhammas. We will probably find that bringing the whole body to mind in this way removes us from the context of internal analysis, but that we can alternate between the internal and external perspectives, albeit only reluctantly, but not hold both in mind at the same time. It becomes challenging to abide contemplating body in the body both internally and externally. But this is the whole point of the practice. It is here where insight arises into non-self, and with repeated insight, we familiarize ourselves with the world without self and eventually internalize that way of perceiving the world. Analyzing internally and externally is not an intellectual exercise. We simply sit with the posture breath, body parts, or whatever on the one hand, and with the already routinely presumed body side by side, we will likely discover that after being absorbed 
for a long time and repeatedly with direct, perceivable details of body in the body, the body as a whole will seem discrepant. We just can't find the body or anything like it in what we have been sitting with for the last hour contemplating internally, the breath, body parts, and so on. But this is the result we're looking for, for it means the evidence fails to support our presumption of a substantial external body. We find this method built into the breath exercise of the Satipatthana Sutta as well, as in an equivalent passage in the Anapanasati Sutta. Breathing in long, he understands... I breathe in long. Breathing out long, he understands. I breathe out long. Breathing in short, he understands. I breathe in short. Or breathing out short, he understands. I breathe out short. He trains thus. I shall breathe in, experiencing the whole body. He trains thus. I shall breathe out, experiencing the whole body. He trains thus, I shall breathe with a tranquilized body fabrication. He trains thus, I shall breathe out, tranquilizing the body fabrication. In the first two steps, the monk performs internal analysis of something inherently impermanent, breath. Then he performs external analysis in experiencing the presumed or fabricated body externally, what is called here the whole body, sabbakaya, the facet of the self. Finally, he holds the internal and external analyses side by side. The result is that we let the body fabrication, kaya sankarang, the external body, be tranquilized. Since it cannot be sustained, the self is gone, at least for now. The examination of impermanence in the context of internal analysis plays a critical role in this result. We cannot reasonably infer permanence from evidence based in that which is impermanent. As we observe body Internally, its components, its movements, its decay, etc., we are keenly aware of its impermanent nature. Then to attempt to hold the substantial fixed body and mind side by side with the internal evidence is bound to appear incongruous. When we put aside the presumed substantial body, on the other hand, tranquilizing the bodily fabrication, we abide once again in an internal world of impermanence and insubstantial things. Let's take a quick look at the rest of the refrain. There is a body. Through primary analysis, we've disabled the presumption of a self. But we have not proved that there is no substantial self, nor disabled the usefulness of the concept of a self. Or else, proficiency that there is a body is simply established in him to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and proficiency. 
Our concepts are not the problem as long as we recognize their emptiness. It's not that there is nothing there at all, only that the body is not what we think it is. The concept of a body serves as a useful marker that can be used in sorting out the world. The concept of the body as a self is useful, for instance, to get across the street without getting run over. In fact, without reference to body, how would we provide practice instructions at all for the first satipatthana? We are capable of maintaining our internal stance, even in the presence of conceptualization, as long as we don't get caught up in presumption and consequent proliferation of external narrations. Let's look at the part about non-clinging. The primary analysis of the refrain is based on the teaching of the three characteristics, tilakana. We have reviewed the approach to non-self and impermanence found there. The final instruction of the refrain relates to suffering, but from the perspective of successful practice. And he abides, independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That is how a bhikkhu abides, contemplating body in the body. It's sobering but critical in Buddhist practice to realize that everything and everyone we cling to will be lost to us one by one until the ones that remain lose us. The world is slipping by like sand through our fingers. As a result, our experiential world is littered with the shards of broken promises. We've been duped because we have presumed that an enduring, substantial self exists along with its interest in enduring, substantial objects. And we suffer because everything is, in fact, in constant flux. Our narrative presumptions simply do not keep pace with the unfolding of what plays out over time. Primary analysis trains us not to presume, not presuming we have nothing to cling to in the world that we might appropriate as me or mine. This is the end of suffering. Once again, it's important to understand that primary analysis is not an intellectual argument that there is no self. We humans are perfectly capable of intellectual conviction of one thing while consistently presuming its opposite. Rather, primary analysis serves through repeated practice to internalize non-self so that we no longer spontaneously perceive the involvement of a self at every opportunity. The interpretation of internal and external is not the only one around. The most common interpretation in the literature of the trichotomy of internal, external, and both internal and external is that we first contemplate internally our own body, feelings, and mind, and then we contemplate externally those of other people, and then we contemplate both together. This empathetic interpretation has some serious defects. First, such a practice of empathy is not attested 
anywhere in the early text to my knowledge. In spite of the prominence apportioned to it in the Satipatthana Sutta, where it frames the contents of the rest of the refrain. In fact, in most correlates of this sutta, including the Chinese parallels, the trichotomy is introduced right at the beginning of the text, where it frames the context of the rest of the text. For instance, in the Samyutta Nikaya, we find it right in the introduction. Here bhikkhus dwell contemplating body in the body internally, ardent, comprehending, proficient, having removed covetousness and displeasure in regard to the world, dwell contemplating body in the body externally, ardent, comprehending, proficient, having removed covetousness and displeasure in regard to the world, dwell contemplating body in the body internally and externally, ardent, comprehending, proficient, having removed covetousness and displeasure in regard to the world. Second, in offsetting non-self, the empathetic interpretation provides a weak dhammic basis for contemplation in the exercises of the first three satipatthanas, a particularly conspicuous deficit in view of the attention given to the other two characteristics of impermanence, and at least a nod to suffering. Third, the empathetic interpretation provides no explanation of the otherwise obscure phrases body in the body and tranquilizing the body fabrication as congruent with primary analysis. Fourth, the empathetic interpretation leads to various inconsistencies when brought into particular passages. For instance, there Abhiko abides contemplating body in the body, internally ardent, comprehending, and proficient, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. As he abides contemplating body in the body in this way, he becomes rightly composed, that is, in samadhi, he becomes rightly serene. Thus, rightly composed and rightly serene, he gives rise to knowledge and vision externally with regard to the body beyond. This passage is repeated for feelings, mind, and dhammas. Under the empathetic interpretation, he gains no insight about his own body, but oddly only about the body of others. In the current account, the body beyond is the presumed body, the one equated with the self, and insight arises when we bring that body to mind. This is basically how the refrain works. Contemplation is essentially a process of sitting with what is directly perceived. Next week, we will demonstrate the application of this to the four sets of exercises. To learn more about the Rethinking the Satipatthana Project, please go to sirigu.org slash chintita, that is s-i-t-a-g-u dot org, c-i-n-t-i-t-a.